fill up, fill up my cup of water and come back in about 30 seconds. This podcast contains coarse language, adult themes, and spoilers. My name's Peach, and for the past couple of years, I've been helping my friend Shag overcome his childhood aversions to everyday foods in the podcast Fussy Eater. Now it's his turn to help me conquer my phobia of scary movies over one spooky night in the FBI studios, one Wikipedia synopsis at a time. This is Spooko. I'm just recording these, sorry, so it'll just be one long. Yeah, that's German great, that's audio. fine with me. That's fine with me. And, um, yeah, you, you start. So we've been using this metaphor of sand over recent weeks, and the metaphor of sand in my life is, like, the stuff you've got to do, or it's some weird metaphor that I haven't really managed to pin down. Shag and I spoke a few weeks ago about, like, what did I mean by sand, and I tried to explain that sometimes the various demands on one's time and attention in life feel like you're facing a wall that's made out of slightly rotting or old wood and sand is coming out in various different parts and you have to allocate your hands in different parts to stop certain sand flows. Once you stop one sand flow, sand starts flowing elsewhere. And as I started to get into it, Shag correctly started to pick holes with the really clumsy metaphor and I was like... "Mm." It's a sand-holding machine, and it's the machinery of life, and the life machine needs to have as much sand inside it as possible to run efficiently, and so I ought to try to keep that sand inside. And the more we picked holes in the metaphor, the less and less useful it's become. But (laughs) the reason I raise it now is that as I was uh, preparing for today's session, I realized I couldn't find a pair of just really old-fashioned headphones. You know how you used to have 30 or 40 pairs of those in your house, earbuds with a little headphone jack. And as I was searching in, I turned out an old pair of shorts in this room that was vacuumed earlier this week. And out of my shorts literal sand went all over the floor and there's nothing that pisses me off more than having sand in my bedroom and so we've come full circle from metaphorical sand bringing me um you know demanding my attention and energy to literal sand really fucking up my day and pissing me off and you know we started this project as if it was going to be one night only and to take you behind the curtain surprise it's not (laughs) (laughs) Peach you're not supposed to yeah no I'm sorry like I'm really sorry (laughs) I think we still even have that in the intro yeah let's leave it in the intro but But it was just nice for this metaphorical sand to finally be like oh that actually really fucking pisses me off and it's literal sand and so here we are it's good how are you Another place that has a lot of sand is Greece, which has a lot of uh, beautiful beaches, not just for on the mainland, but across its many amazing islands. And It's got a lot of segues there as well. It's awesome. It's a great, it's a great, it's a great spot. I had no idea how I was going to do it, and that was the best I could come up with <laughs> off the dome. But today, 
I, I bring that up because uh, mm. today's film was mm. actually inspired by an ancient Greek play by an ancient Greek playwright called Euripides. Now, yeah. Euripides uh, was born around 480 BC. What I think is actually super interesting about this is, so mm. this film is more or less based on an mm. ancient play. And when we, go th- when we go through this film, you'll be like, oh, that's actually a pretty accurate retelling of this story. And... Uh, but obviously in a modern in a modern setting and he was a super uh progressive playwright for his time so he was one of the playwrights that helped develop the genre that's now called comedy for example like comedy didn't exist and he was one of the pioneers that was like hang on what if this didn't end badly? Like, what if... This is like the world before learning about that gag when everyone got their pee plates that in Australia allow you to drive of when someone's about to get in the car, you just drive a <laughs> tiny, tiny bit further forward <laughs> when they're about to get in. And then every time you go, no, no, I'm not going to do it this time. And then you do it each subsequent time, which is one of the funnier jokes there have ever been. Well, no, it's probably the funniest joke in the world, right? Because... A really great joke has to involve some sort of victim. But you don't want to punch <laughs> down, right? So yep. so it's perfect because someone does get hurt, but only in the moment. And they yes. get really annoyed and it's endlessly repeatable. And in fact, it, it's the rare... It, you know, it's it's the rule, it's the joke that disobeys the rules of thermodynamics because it doesn't yes. lose energy. In fact, it gains energy. It the more you momentum. do that joke, the funnier it is. <laughs> because it's then, like, you then start to have, yeah, like compounding funniness of like, how long are we going to do this for? <laughs> yeah. Which is just a funny thing to do. <laughs> the first time you do it, it's fine. The 10th time you do it might be the funniest thing that's happened to you all year. Oh, let's do it again soon. Let's definitely do it again but soon. But anyway, Euripides was probably doing that on his chariot with people and being like, yo, giddy up. But also, Euripides was also one of the first, mm. I guess, st- you know, story writers to mm. uh, tell stories about how, I guess, people's like passions and loves can actually harm everything around them and like that will bring them down. Like by following their passions, by following their loves, they'll in fact end up somewhere bad, which I think becomes the horror genre after many, many permutations. Uh, I'm more or less pledged not to say 50 Cent's name uh, again in vain since his endorsement of Trump, but this is very much the 50 Cent story. Or, or alternatively, it's the 50 Cent story about his disappointing oldest son, Marquise, who he hates heaps and thinks he's an idiot. <laughs> but then the other thing I wanted to say, I'm sorry, this isn't a Euripides podcast, but the more I got into this guy, the more I was into it. So he was also famous for saying like super progressive things. And in fact, things were like, you know, essentially denouncing the patriarchy and feminists back way before the term feminist existed. Peach, go. He'd be in favour of Biden's tax plan, I would expect. He'd be like... <laughs> oh, he, <laughs> hunt, he would be yeah. straight up. He would be like... He would probably be a Bernie bro, but luckily... Yeah, if Bernie bro. Luckily, you know, the left side of politics has found some consensus this, consensus this year. <laughs> anyway, this is, this, is, this is something he wrote for a female character in one of his plays to say that scandalised mm. the other playwrights and society at the time. I would rather stand three times with a shield in battle than give birth once. 
Now that is a female character saying that in like 400 BC. Insane. And it's very funny. In fairness, it's a super funny <laughs> joke. And he, and he really brought it home. <laughs> it's the who's on first, you know, what's on second of the 470s, 470s BC or 460s BC. So, so anyway, so today's film is based on the play Iphigenia in, Al- in Aulis. Uh, it's a again it's an ancient Greek play I love how because it's a play and it's in Wikipedia they have to have like all of the things so date premiered and place premiered so place premiered <laughs> Athens <laughs> like cool <laughs> date premiered I don't know how the fuck they know this 405 BC so this is a story that first showed up 2400 years ago didn't he die in 406 yeah, so, so, so it only premiered pos- after his death. Yeah. play. This is Heath Ledger's Oscar after his death or whatever. This is. <laughs> well, I mean, it's Heath Ledger's Oscar if he got it in the year like 4,500. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So with all of that aside, uh, hmm. today's film, and I'm very excited about this because we haven't done an A24 art house contemporary scary film in a while today's film is called the killing of a sacred deer we we don't have to worry about nothing it's nothing serious no it is how did his father die a surgeon never kills a patient an anesthesiologist can kill a patient but a surgeon never can don't be scared mom You'll see. You won't be able to move either. We're gonna let it burn, burn, burn. I don't understand why I should have to pay the price. Why my children should have to pay the price. It's the only thing I can think of as close to justice. We can let it So they can put it out, out, out. Medical horror remains probably the most fucked up genre. Like... Like as we're trying to brainstorm for films, I'm like, take the safe, take the familiar, and fuck it up. And like that must be the path we take as we get Spooko Studios rolling, or if we need to rename the studio based on Spooko being an offensive name, then then that's the position we can take. And the idea of consenting to being put under a general anaesthetic or consenting to take the advice of a medical person. It's about the most complete trust we can ever give. And to have that trust abused is l- literally horrific. Like, it's really profoundly disturbing. So I'm, I'm upset. And what is that song? I agree. I agree. You're right. Like, mm. that idea of submitting yourself and then being at the mercy of a surgeon who is perhaps has nefarious motives is fucked up, right? Another Ugh. tactic that I've seen used, especially in these sort of contemporary art house horrors, is that idea of a character singing a song. And like you said, it's a familiar song, but if you have just like a kid singing a popular song out of context, all of a sudden, somehow, that becomes scary. Like, and you could do it with literally any song. Like you could be like... Yep. Like, like for example, and I, and again, I'm like, I know. <laughs> I was gonna say you could do it with a Fifty Cent song. Yeah. Although, <laughs> hey Peach, I, I've been super getting into Pop Smoke after last week, and I've yeah. got to say, he has this one song called PTSD, and 
I think it has like one of my favorite opening lyrics in a rap song in a long, long time. In that, I think in, an, in you know in a lot of hip hop, and in fact a lot of a lot of a lot of music that's about you know coming from a place of trauma mm. is this shadow of PTSD that like nobody really talks about, but it's sort of there. And this song starts with a line that I just think is so evocative and so succinct. And he's like, "My PTSD is starting to kick in, so I've got to get high." And like, like obviously, like people self-medicate, you know, when they have trauma, like that's a common thing we know. And it just feels like the most succinct way of talking. Like, I just, I just love it. Like, Ugh, and, and also the beat sounds like, uh, like vintage 50. It's amazing. Anyway, anyway. I, okay. So before we get into this, The Killing of a Sacred Deer, mm. it's by Yorgos Lanthimos, who you may know as the director of The Favourite, which was recently nominated for like 10 Academy Awards. Uh, he also did a film called Dogtooth, which isn't strictly horror. So I, I won't do it on this podcast but it's completely fucked up and it's about these parents who have these adult children who have never let them leave the house and pretend there's no world outside of the house and then it devolves into like cat killing and incest and all sorts of things and it's just like it's it's nuts and the favorite is also completely nuts even though it's historical fiction uh but this film especially is just something else. But again, one more thing. One more mm. thing before we get into it. So Barry Cogan, who is, the, I guess, the main character mm. uh, that you see in the film, he's that young boy. And uh, like, I'm just going to be like, I don't know how else to say it. He has a very distinctive face. Some people have dis- some people like you know like there's there's sort of eight face shapes which most of us roughly fall into yep. and then there are outliers who it's like how like how what algorithm created that face kind hereditary, of hereditary like, yeah hereditary young Millie woman. Shapiro in her in yep. hereditary right like so I guess my question to you is this because mm. often you're my ethical barometer <laughs> is it no 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 but listen See. to this listen to this okay is it empowering or is it exploitative to take someone with a unique face and make them the weird spooky character in your film? I couldn't agree more with this being an ethical quandary. You know, like it's, it's genuine of like, yeah, we need someone who looks weird. And so, <laughs> you know, if the character is someone who looks weird, so, so let's, let's just take someone normal and put some makeup on them. And then you can imagine weird looking people like, oh, fucking no jobs for weird looking people, even when someone is a weird looking person. Um, and then the similar one, was it for Hamilton that's coming out where um, the there's a lead character who is a, a person of colour and um, instead of... And in no in, way are you are you comparing... Comparing, comparing the two. So, sorry, so, person, sorry yeah. I'm, I'm trying to talk about the complexity of casting, yeah. right? Yes, of course. And, and, and the lead character is a person of colour and, and what happens is that for the Australian production, the cast is entirely local save for the lead actor who is the same actor who portrayed the character over in the United States. And so the line was, oh, well, fuck, like, so there's no good people of, like, there are no um, uh, people of colour who are good enough actors in Australia who are able to portray this role, like, fuck off. And so similarly, if you had, um, uh, you, you know, someone put on a, you, you know, put on a weird mask or have weird face makeup and to, to look ugly, and then ugly people would be like, well, fucking where's all the job for all us uggos? Um, I can understand. Yeah, I can see both sides of it. Where it's like, you're only casting me because I look like this. And it's like, well, a lot of very attractive people could say the same thing. You know? Oh, yeah, shaggy. like it is an ethical quandary. I say it's fine. In fact, let's just come down, come down and say it's fine. And we're relaxed about it. 
if Euripides <laughs> did Euripides have anything to say about it? <laughs> 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 he would have had a okay. good take. All right, so let's start this. So uh, this film from 2017 stars uh, like an actually pretty huge lineup. Uh, mm. There's Colin Farrell, there's Nicole Kidman, Alicia mm. Silverstone's in it, um, and of course mm-hmm. Barry Cogan and some other people as well. Sick. Stephen Murphy, played by Colin Farrell, is a skilled cardiothoracic surgeon. Now he finishes an open heart surgery and goes to a diner where he meets a teenage boy named Martin, and Martin is Barry Cogan. Cool. Afterwards, Stephen returns home to his wife, Anna, Nicole Kidman, and their children, teenager Kim and younger son, Bob. Anna and Stephen have sex where Anna pretends to be under the effect of anesthesia. And if, if, if I remember correctly, I don't, I don't think they explicitly go, now this is the reason why. I think they just, that's just how they have sex. Look, yeah, we're not a kink shame podcast, but yep, yep, that doesn't make me feel good. That does not make me feel good. <laughs> so... He later yeah, that's tells almost Anna, like having a kink of, yeah, like a kink where the other person's unable to consent to what you're doing. Maybe I do have a problem with that. Maybe I don't. But then, but then, if it's consented, then the other person has a kink where they are incapacitated. Yes, sorry. Yes, that is right. That is the right response. So anyway, uh, after this uh, consensual encounter, they later, he later tells Anna that Martin's father died in a car accident 10 years earlier and that he has taken an interest in the boy to help him deal with his grief, uh, which kind of explains why Martin comes to the Murphy household for dinner. Okay. And Kim, the daughter, seems rather taken with him. Mm. Which is cool, again, because they cast him to be like, you're st- but they don't cast him to be like, you're not attractive or like there's something about you. Yep. You know, so they're not being like, you're ugly, which to me, I think they kind of did in Hereditary. Like, I kind of think the point is that she is like, that's, that is my what, like, I love Hereditary, but that is my one thing about it. I'm like, it, like, is it cool the way they treat the daughter? The preview has a bit of like PT Barnum about it of like, look at this kid. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's like, oh yeah, okay, cool. I get it. This is a bit awkward. Exploitative is probably what I'm looking for. Not awkward, but yes. Now, after the meal, Stephen tries to get Martin to leave, but Martin insists he watch a movie with him, which is when you start to go, okay, so there's some weird coercive relationship going on. Martin leaves halfway through, uh, and his mother, who picks him up, makes a romantic advance on Stephen by complimenting his hands and attempting to kiss them and suck them. However, Stephen immediately rebuffs her and goes home. All right, so I think he must have dropped her home. I, I, like, I, I can't remember the specifics of this film, but anyway, essentially, weird kid has a mum who comes on to the dad, Colin Fowler, and Colin's like, no, I don't want any part of this. Yeah, like I hate moving and breathing sexual partners. Like you're too, you're too animated for me. But yes, sorry. No, sorry, that, is, that was a kink-shaming thing to say and I withdraw that mm. and I apologise for that. Over the next few days, Martin's demands on Stephen's time grow increasingly frequent and desperate, but Stephen does not reply. So one morning, Bob, who is the younger son, mm. awakens and finds he cannot feel his legs. He has become paralysed. Stephen and Anna, so... Colin Farrell and Nicole Kidman rush him to the hospital where an examination reveals that there is nothing physically wrong with him. Meanwhile, Martin visits Kim, the daughter at the Murphy family home. She tells him that she loves him and undresses. Martin says that he has to go home and leaves. 
Like this is so far, like so far, so art house psychological horror. All of this stuff is like, yep, I'm there. I'm enjoying this. I feel like I feel uneasy. And again, this is like, I'm I'm upset right here. Yeah. Okay. So the next morning, Martin meets Stephen and reveals the truth. His father did not die in the crash, but during surgery that Stephen himself performed after the accident. And Martin blames Stephen for his father's death. Martin explains that to balance the act of destroying a family, Stephen must kill one of the members of his own. If not, the Murphys will slowly die after four stages. Paralysis is the first stage, followed by self-imposed starvation, then bleeding from the eyes, and finally death. Okay. So Stephen attempts to dismiss these claims, but later finds that Bob, the son, is refusing food. Soon after, Kim also loses the use of her legs and the willingness to eat. Okay. Oh, uh, we've got the curses, the bleeding from the eyes. We've got uh, the female character yeah, who cool. was also refusing food. Yep. Yep. Okay. So they take Kim, the daughter, to hospital where she receives a call from Martin. During the conversation, she regains the use of her legs only to lose mobility again when the connection <sighs> is broken. This convinces Anna, Nicole Kidman, that Martin has the power to follow through on his threats, which is insane. She visits Martin to ask why she and her children must suffer for Stephen's mistakes. Martin responds that it's the only thing that's close to justice. Anna, suspecting that her formerly alcoholic husband may have been drinking on the day of the operation, speaks to Stephen's anesthesiologist, Matthew, about the surgery in which Martin's father died. Matthew reveals that Stephen did, in fact, have a few drinks that morning in return for a sexual favor from Anna. Like, I think she just, she gives him like a hand, hand job in the car. It's, it's all very sort of business-like. Uh, okay. Matthew bargains Anna into masturbating him as payment for the information. After all tests are exhausted, the hospital is at a loss for a solution. So, I mean, that's the other cool thing, right? Like, the hospital's like, yeah, these things are definitely happening. There's just no reason why these things should happen. So Anna insists the children are, so Anna insists the children are transported back home where they are tube fed. Stephen then kidnaps Martin, brutally beating him and demanding that he reverse the condition of the children. Martin is unaffected, merely warning Steve that time is running out. And I mean that's so unaffected. So so sorry. So he's unnaturally impervious to uh, attack. No 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 no. So he gets he gets hurt, but he's basically like. Mm. Your time's like he, he's like nothing. Yeah. What you do is going to change things. I need justice, and your time is running out. Fuck. So, Kim and Bob, the kids, argue over who their father will choose. While Anna, and this is so fucked, Nicole Kidman claims that killing one of the children is clearly the only option, as they can have another. <laughs> Oh, God. Attempting to reach a decision, 
And, and in fact, maybe this is the most fucked part, actually. Attempting to reach a decision, Stephen meets with the school principal and questions which of his children is most academically gifted. <laughs> that's actually grimly funny. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's fairly funny. <laughs> Bloody hell. So... Kim, who still has a crush on Martin, attempts to persuade him to heal her legs again so they may elope together. When unsuccessful, she attempts to save herself by escaping and crawling through the neighborhood. And this is one of those dark moments where essentially, because she just does not have her lower body, she's just crawling along these suburban streets. Stephen and Anna retrieve her. As Stephen disinfects her wounds, Kim tells him how much he loves him and volunteers to be the one to die. The next morning, Anna releases Martin as holding him captive was no use. And that's the spooky thing, right? Like nothing can stop it. At this point, the countdown continues because Bob, the youngest, begins bleeding from his eyes, causing all to panic. Rather than choose... Okay, so this is where it gets proper A24. Stephen binds Kim, Bob and Anna to chairs, covers their heads and pulls a woolen hat over his own face. He loads a rifle, spins in circles and fires. The first two shots miss, but the third kills Bob, his younger son. Sometime later, the family visits the same diner where Stephen met with Martin. Martin enters and stares at them. He and the family briefly lock eyes. As the Murphys leave, Martin gazes after them and Kim turns to look back at Martin as she leaves. And that's the end of the killing of a sacred deer. Man, Euripides, like, bloody hell. Like, Shag, that's, that's, that's a properly messed up. That's, that's properly... I didn't like that. But what I think is interesting about it is it's based on a play from, as we said, you know, uh, 400 BC, in which I think one of the gods asks Agamemnon to sacrifice his daughter to make sure that their army has like a favorable trip. And I think what he tries to do is he replaces it with a deer to be like, I'm not going to kill my daughter, but let's just kill a sacred deer and see what happens. Um, I'm, I am very hugely paraphrasing that. But what I think is interesting is, you know, taking that context of something out of our control, asking for justice or asking for a thing and then putting that into a contemporary context, which uh, like I, I think makes it incredibly chilling, but also they're, they're, I, like there's just, I don't even know what to say about it. There's just something about this film that just sticks with me. Yeah. Yeah, this is this is a proper off kilter one. This is this is deeply upsetting. Just even the visuals of the crawling down the stairs with the lack of use of leg kind of thing. You're just like, fuck. No, no. Let's let's end this podcast. This is this has got to like this is human. Like I'm in human centipede centipede frame of mind. Gigs. It couldn't have been made in the eighties. <laughs> <laughs> or if it was it'd be called like I Bleeders Returns 
or if Ramsey Campbell or whatever his name would <laughs> name it would be like the family who got cursed. <laughs> and then and then the trailer would be like deep in the suburbs. You thought you were safe. Don't open the door. Don't invite him to dinner. Don't talk to weird kid or something like you know what like that would be it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he's uh, ugly anyway, and he's evil. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, if it was the eighties, there'd be heaps of characters being like, "Who's that?" <laughs> like there would be a lot of characters explaining that the character looked weird. I feel like there'd be more comic relief as well. I'm like, <laughs> good look, good work, Argo. <laughs> high five, high five. <laughs> And yeah, I think we just like I'm glad we had that little joke after this because I think we needed a bit of levity after yeah, that. Yeah, I need I need a bit of a palate cleanser. I got to get back to that sand shortly, but man, shag this podcast. Uh, this was recorded at FBI Studios. Please like, subscribe, and follow wherever you can and as much as you can. And Resh's, what's up?